self-doubt is that that part of you which is still prepared to take a risk. Hello and welcome to Write Off, the podcast about writing rejection and how people get through it. I'm Francesca Steele, your host, a writer and journalist based in London. This interview has a special place in my heart because Joanne Harris, the prolific author known for the gorgeous chocolat, among other things, was the first person I ever interviewed. I spoke to her for my university newspaper nearly 20 years ago, and she was thankfully very nice then and remains very nice today. Joanne is so good, I think, on retaining a real sense of normality and perspective about the world of publishing. She wrote for a long time before she was published with the kind of acclaim she gets now. And as anyone who follows her on Twitter will know, she's keen to remind you that there's a lot of hard work involved in being a novelist, while also joyfully conjuring up a sense of the magic of it all. I'm not sure I've spoken to a more adventurous, genre-hopping novelist. Joanne fearlessly tackles whichever genre she's interested in at the time, and indeed isn't really fond of the notion of genres at all, actually. We talk about her excellent new thriller, A Narrow Door, and how it felt to write that compared with, say, her gastro-romances. Not a word she's keen on, completely understandably. We also discuss her making and burning a sculpture out of the rejection letters for Chocolat, rewriting her fantasy novel Rune Marks from scratch because her daughter wanted to see it published so much, and how mistakes are all signposts on the road to success. Oh, and also the time she met Harvey Weinstein. Before we get going, I just want to say something about Write-Off's sponsor this season. Dealing with rejection is just one part of a writer's life. Jericho Writers are with you for every word. They are all about embracing the entire journey, rejections and all, and are committed to helping you hit your writing goals whatever stage you're at. Their inspiring courses, editorial services and events have launched writing careers. And members benefit from heaps of additional content such as video courses, masterclasses, and weekly live online events, many of which I've enjoyed myself. By becoming a Jericho Writers member, you can get insight into the world of agents and publishers, power through your plot problems, level up your prose style, and polish your submission before it lands in an agent's inbox. Plus, you'll be learning alongside a worldwide community of writers who will keep you motivated and on track, even when a rejection rolls in. Listeners of the podcast can get an exclusive 15% discount on membership, by going to jerichowriters.com forward slash join dash us and entering the code write dash off. I will put that in the show notes. So let's listen to Joanne. You published your first novel, The Evil Seed, in 1989, when you were just 25. Quite an achievement. Did you always want to be a writer? And were you always writing from an early age? Yes, I was always writing. Uh, I didn't have the slightest idea what it meant to be a writer. And I wasn't planning to be a writer professionally, but I had this book and uh, I'd written it. And so I submitted it to various people and, and then to various agents who eventually got me a book deal. But it wasn't um, it wasn't what you'd call an overnight success. It was, I think, I think to be kind, it had a cult readership, which meant that basically it was largely unread. I did get one fan letter from a lady in Pinner who signed it. Uh, from all of her cats, <laughs> but uh, that that was pretty much um, pretty much the sum of it at the time. And how long had it taken you to write that novel? Had you sort of picked it up and and had you spent a fair amount of time on it? 
Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd spent about two years writing it and then another two years rewriting it to the specifications of my uh, my agent and my editor. But yeah, I mean, it, it took a while. It, it takes a long time to get a book into shape and particularly a first novel because, you know, even then, first novels needed to be in a publishable shape because generally publishers didn't want to spend a lot of time getting editors to work on them. So it either had to be immediately publishable or really not publishable at all. Did you have a hard time getting an agent or did that come quite swiftly? No, I had a tough time getting an agent too. Um, I didn't really know what an agent did. So initially I started off um, thinking that perhaps I could do without it. And I got nothing, no no um, reaction at all from publishers, because actually, guess what? Publishers do need to have recommendations from somebody they know and trust. And so eventually I, I went back to the writer's handbook, actually, and just just went through pages and pages of agencies. And well, because I didn't work at weekends, I did all my phoning at weekends. And it turns out that most agents don't work weekends either. So um, <laughs> so I got the one that answered who happened to be working from home and I talked him into reading my book. And after a little while, he, he took me on. Because, of course, you were a teacher at this point, weren't you? Hence having to make the calls on the weekend. How would you fit in your writing into having a full time job, which I suppose is very common. I mean, that's what most people do. Actually. It's very common. I fitted it in the way people do fit in things that they want to do. People find the time to do the things that they want to do, whether that's watching TV or going out with their friends or taking up going to the gym or, or writing a book it's these things are, are things that you you choose and so I basically chose to give up all the other things and, and to, to keep doing this given that you were giving up all these other things did you feel somehow um did you have a strong sense that you wanted to be published that this was you know you were giving up things with a goal in mind no, not really, because I knew how difficult it was to get into print. And I also knew how difficult it was to make a living even when you're in print. And so I took it as an exercise in, in how far I could go. But I wouldn't have stopped writing. I'd, I'd been writing for such a long time and, and I'd enjoyed it for such a long time that I wouldn't have stopped doing it just because I didn't get into print. It, it's, I think you have to have something other than publication in mind to sustain writing over any long period of time because it's still so chancy. Mm. I know you've said in the past that you weren't allowed to read horror or sci-fi as a child. Is that right? Yeah, my mother was um, very strict about things like that. And and you've said that that might explain why your first novel, um, The Evil Seed, was a vampire story. I wondered if you see writing as an act of rebellion in some way. I didn't think of it that way. I don't deconstruct why I do what I do, generally. Um, I think that choosing that particular literary form was perhaps an act of rebellion, but it was also an exploration of things that I didn't know. Um, so I kind of explored horror writing and fantasy writing when I left home and realised that there was a lot in there that interested me and a lot that tied in with the things that I'd been interested in before and so I wrote I wrote this this vampire novel but you know I've, I've always had a theory that most first novels are either coming-of-age stories or vampire stories because there's there's a lot in the vampire novel which echoes the coming-of-age novel it's all about finding your tribe and feeling alienated and sex and how it's forbidden 
And all these other things that very young writers tend to write about because it is the sum of their life experience unless they've had a very, a very difficult, very different life. Usually that's about the time that young writers start to, to explore their feelings about the world and society. Mm, I think that's really insightful. Um, okay, so Chocolat was published in 1999, skipping ahead a little bit. You published another novel before that. So Chocolat was your third, uh, certainly your third published novel. I don't know whether you wrote any others in between, but... Um, yes, I wrote lots. Yeah, I, I, I wrote several things that got rejected and I just put them away and wrote something else. I think the thing about not having a, a, a full contract with a publisher is that it gives you a certain amount of freedom to actually explore what you want to do. So because I was writing things on spec and I didn't have a publisher waiting for something, it meant that I could I could look around and, and see what I was actually interested in and, and do that. And so you wrote, how many other manuscripts do you think you wrote between um, in that, because there was a decade between The Evil Seed and Chocolat? Well, I had um, a book called Holy Fools, which eventually did get published. And I had another oh. one called Witchlight, which was eventually published and rewritten completely as, as Rune Marks. And I had another novel called Fast Fade to Black, which was set in the film world, which which I eventually abandoned completely uh, because I didn't know enough about the film world to write that story. But it was a, it was a completed book of its sort. And I had another very strange manuscript called Skinscape, which is all about tattooing, which which again got rejected so many times that I, I put it in the drawer. But, you know, <laughs> I've, I've got this feeling that nothing that you write is ever wasted and so some things were revisited and finished some things I just stripped various single ideas out of them and reused them and then some things are still waiting their time it's so brave to um as you say I mean you have to enjoy it to keep doing that but it's so brave to still submit them I mean presumably in this decade you were submitting these things to your agent and either your agent or the editors he was submitting them to were saying no is that right but yeah I mean so I, I don't think it is brave I think it's 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 a kind of bottom line minimum because if you don't submit things how can you ever be published I wonder what was different about Chocolat then because Chocolat I know you've said in the past that that people told you not to write it? And who, who were those people yeah. and what were they saying? Well, my agent um, reached a point where I wasn't, after two books, I wasn't getting any offers anymore. And this is this is a fairly normal thing. Two strikes and you're out in publishing. Mm. But if Gosh. two novels don't get traction, then publishers will be very reluctant to put money into an author because they will assume that that author won't sell. And they also assume that Authors write the same thing over and over again, which which is sometimes true and sometimes not. In my case, it wasn't, but it doesn't really make much of a difference. Publishing has a kind of love of the debut novel. It did then, it does even more now. And, you know, if you've been around a while and, and not had any success, then it, it's likely that people will be much less interested in you than if you're a newcomer. And I knew this, and my publisher was trying to get me to sell in the States. Um, he thought that the, the States would be a good market for the kind of thing he thought I was writing. Um, and, and so he got in touch with this, um, this colleague of his over there called Al Zuckerman, who had written a book called How to Write the Blockbuster Novel. And he sent one of my manuscripts to Al Zuckerman, who, who then sent back what he thought were all the reasons I wasn't selling in the States. And they were all the reasons why I shouldn't have written Chocolat. Um, <laughs> what I wrote was too parochial. It was too 
European, um, you know, there wasn't enough action in there. There weren't enough sex scenes. Um, you know, he kind of listed all the things that that Chocolat became. Um, and I went off and I, I, I thought, well, OK, if I never get published again, so be it. I've had my go at this. I've had two books that they're on the shelves. I'm going to end up writing anything I like and we'll see if it doesn't get published. It doesn't matter. I've done that. Yeah, I wasn't expecting to, to, to sell any more copies than I had before. I'd, I'd sold like you know, a couple of thousand copies at the most of my first two books. And I thought, OK, this is it. This is this is the line. And so I went out and wrote Chocolat and it was parochial and it was European and it was it was this strange, unfashionable concept. I mean, at the time, there were, there were all these these books coming out in literary fiction that had all their similes and metaphors stripped out of them in this this bare bleak prose and people mm -hmm. writing things about issues and it was it was quite a minimalist time for writers and then along came my book and it was full of this you know, splashy description and all this talk about food and and it was just so unfashionable a concept and so new I think to to people at the time that you know it just it just it just took and even my publisher wasn't sure about whether it would take you know it, it mm it became a word of mouth success rather than a success made from publishing hype because the you know the publisher was only half behind it when it came out there was there was always the idea that maybe they'd made a mistake am i right in thinking that you changed agents in between in that period yes i did i, I changed agents because um i thought that it would be useful for me given that i was doing something completely new to try somebody else and I had a friend one friend in London Chris Fowler who was a writer and and he said you know what maybe you could try my agent and so I approached her and that was after your previous agent had seen the idea or some of the manuscript for Chocolat or did they not know anything about it no he didn't he hadn't seen any of that um but he had seen some of the things I tried to uh, to submit before and I was getting the impression that he was he was starting to get impatient and thinking, well, you know, why am I representing this client who, who can't sell anything? And mm -hmm. so I thought, you know, maybe I'd better chuck him before he chucks me. <laughs> OK, and so you got your new agent and so they started to send this unfashionably um, verbose manuscript out. I'll come back to that because I reread it for this interview and I loved it. But I'll come back to that in a second. Um, so your new agent sent your manuscript out and what happened? Because it wasn't, it didn't pick up a publisher straight away, did it? Yeah, well, well you know what? Most agents don't tell your authors when, when they send things out what's going on. They only tell authors good news. And so I just heard nothing at all for a while. And I thought, okay, fine. I have no idea what she's doing, um, but it's her job to do something. And I guess when she's got news, she'll give me news. And what I found out later was that she'd sent out this, this manuscript to a number of, of publishers and she'd had some pretty rave rejection letters, but most of them had said things like, well, it's too parochial, it's too European, uh, it's not fashionable, and we don't know how to sell it. They, there was a mm. lot of preoccupation with whether they could sell it as literary fiction or whether it had to fit into a genre, and if so, what sort of genre was it? And, and of course, there wasn't one. Uh, it, it, was, it was just I hadn't written it with a genre in mind. And so then I went off on holiday with my family and uh, 
we went to Ireland. We went to a place where basically there were no there was no signal for mobile phones. And so I didn't realize how how desperately my agent had been trying to get in touch with me. And it was it was during the the October half term. And so it was the time of the Frankfurt Book Fair. And uh, and I phoned home on the landline um, to find my mother in the house. I think she'd taken off some time to, to come and, and clean my house while I was away because she does that kind of thing. And she said, <laughs> oh, by the way, your agent's been on the phone and she's left loads of messages here. So I phoned my agent up and it turned out that she was in Frankfurt and there was a huge amount of foreign interest in Chocolat. Um, mm. Several foreign deals and finally a British deal too. And, and there was also um, film interest and, and suddenly everybody was talking about my book when nobody had been talking about it before. And I realized that, you know, perhaps, perhaps it was going to get published now. Um, and I'd never been in that situation before. I'd never had foreign publishers interested in my work. Um, so I didn't quite know what to do with it. So I just thought, okay, we'll let her sort it out. And then when I got back, she said, okay, well, uh, Transworld have bought your book and so have all these others. And by the way, don't get too excited, but you know, a literary, uh, a scout has has wanted to acquire the rights for a movie. <laughs> so I, I knew that it was going to be slightly different to what I'd known before. And I thought, okay, this is this is new and we'll enjoy the ride, whatever, whatever happens. Yes, it turned amazing. out that the ride was was, uh, was a bit more of a, a bumpy ride than I thought it was going to be, but uh, yeah, it was it was basically what got me to give up my teaching job and and take the plunge at writing full time. In what way was it bumpy? Well, you know, it was a learning curve and quite a steep one. I think you know people prepare you for failure as a writer all the time, but nobody ever prepares you for success. Nobody tells you how to how to manage with the the scrutiny that comes with that kind of success and the press and the intrusions and the the having to go from being a really quite private individual to being what amounted to being a very public individual um yeah there was there was a lot of a lot of reassessment i think i wonder how you've managed to write in some ways against the grain following that scrutiny um because one of the things I wanted to ask you was you've written a lot of things in a lot of different genres. You've written thrillers like your new book, A Narrow Door, which we're going to talk about in a minute. You've written um, some chocolate follow-ups. You've written Rune Marks, which you mentioned earlier, in which the Norse gods are kind of outlaws. I think that it's really interesting because actually marketing will tell you not to do that and I, I wonder if if that's been your reaction to to the scrutiny of success is to kind of go well I'm just going to write what I like and see how it does well you know what I was a teacher for 15 years and I was pretty good at it and I didn't give up that job to be told by another lot of people what I had to do so I thought you know it's this will last for what it lasts but I'm not going to I'm not going to let somebody else determine what I write for a start. If that happened, what I wrote wouldn't be good because it would be to somebody else's requirements. And, and also, I'm still learning. I'm, I'm still on a learning curve. I'm still exploring all kinds of things. And, you know, writing the way I do allows me to do that. Hello, Writerish Podcast listener. I'm Daniel Ford, co-host of the Writer's Bone Podcast and founder of the Writer's Bone Podcast Network. At least one person that I know of has called me the Norman Lear of podcasting, but I'm here to talk about our flagship, Writer's Bone. 
We're a literary podcast that believes in the power of the written word. My co-host, Stephanie Ford, and our Friday morning coffee host, Caitlin Malkwee, believe that storytelling can excite us, educate us, and at its best, unite us. Our mission is to promote authors of all backgrounds, races, creeds, and experiences. Since 2014, we've had the privilege of talking to bestsellers, debut authors, screenwriters, actors and actresses, and so many others that embrace creative endeavors. We hope you'll subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, because we have no intention of stopping anytime soon. And our simplest, perhaps our best advice, keep writing, everyone. Going back to Chocolat, which, as I mentioned, I reread, and I found rereading it kind of, it's kind of like entering a TARDIS. As you say, it's this very rich language. Obviously, there's lots of food descriptions, and it's set in a small town in France, and these sort of quite low-key things happen in a way, but it's written in this incredibly rich, magical way. And of course, and leaving it felt sort of like leaving a kind of amazing Christmas grotto where you emerge and the world looks a little bit different and a little bit plainer. Um, and I, I, I found it incredibly immediately absorbing. And, um, and so the, knowing that it was rejected a number of times felt all the stranger to me as I was rereading it. Going back to that time, I wonder if you can tell me a little bit about the time between when you gave it to your agent and when you heard from her when you came back from Ireland and how that felt, how much time had passed, how it felt, sort of wondering what was going on. Um, and then, of course, when you did find out about the, about the rejections, I believe you did something um, rather funny with them. So I wonder if you can tell us about that too. <laughs> well, you know, for four months after I finished the book and gave it to my agent, nothing happened. I went on doing the things that I'd been doing. I was working. I was a a teacher in a, a boys' grammar school. I was also um, an examiner marking papers for A-levels. Um, I had a four-year-old child. I had plenty to occupy my life. I wasn't just sitting there waiting for news about my book. So I really genuinely kind of forgot about it. Yeah, I didn't have any expectations. I didn't have any particular feeling that something should be happening right then and there was just plenty of of real life stuff for me to think about and so I genuinely didn't think about it until yeah until that time in October when when I suddenly got all the news at once and I didn't find out much about the rejections until some time later and it was years later really um and I made a sculpture with them I made a I made a papier-mâché sculpture with them so you were actually uh, sent them no I wasn't I wasn't supposed to see them um, I, I liberated a file of them from my agent's house. And when she saw that I'd got them, I said, can I take these? And so I did. <laughs> did you read them? Yes, of course. Yeah, I read um, them. And um, you know, there, there were some really quite interesting things from people who much later told me, oh, yes, of course we bid for your book, but we were outbid. And I would think, yeah, well, you know, actually, I saw your rejection letter, so I know that's not true. But but also there are quite strenuous conversations between publishers, between editors and and publishers and marketing departments about, you know, sometimes editors really kind of lay their hearts on the line for something they believe in. And it gets rejected anyway, because the publisher decides that it's it's too much of a risk. And that happens Mm. all the time. And and. This is why an editor needs to to have courage in their convictions. Go up. Yes, and and one of them commented on your on your appearance. Is that right? 
Yeah, it, it's, it's very common for publishers to look at an author photograph and think, okay, is this author going to play well with the public? Or, mm. or do they look kind of gawky and geeky as I absolutely did at that age and still do? But yeah, things have changed a bit now because authors are much more public and people are less likely perhaps to look at those things from one photograph and, and they're much more likely to look at author engagement with the public on social media. And, and that's you know, that, that's a difficult thing, too, because not all authors want to engage on social media, nor should they. Yes. So you made a sculpture and then you and then you set it on fire. <laughs> and and how did that feel? It felt like I was saying fuck you to a lot of people who hadn't believed in me. <laughs> <laughs> and I suppose well, by that you stage. Like do that? You don't yes. always get to do that in Korea. Yes, I mean, my rejection letters would be emails, um, but I suppose if oh, I'm ever yes. very successful, I can print them off and make my own sculpture. <laughs> it must feel really wonderful. Well, I think, you know, everybody needs a bit of catharsis once in a while. Yes. Okay, so Chocolat obviously then did prove anyone who'd not believed in it wrong and was this extraordinary word of mouth hit, a number one bestseller. Um how did that feel? You've mentioned it was difficult to feel scrutinised in that way. Did it also feel wonderful to sell a lot of books? Well, I don't know. Selling a lot of books is a very abstract concept. You don't get to see that happening. It's it's not something that personally I think about a lot. Um, I mean, it's nice to have sales, but those are things that the sales department worry about mostly and the marketing people and your agent I mean I don't generally get a lot of feedback on what my sales have been um, I mean I could go looking I could go looking into the accounts and find out that way but you know what it's when you've got an actual life and you're doing things I don't think thinking about figures is the way that I would choose to spend mine so, yeah, it was great to be able to give up my teaching job and to do something I'd always wanted. That was marvellous. But sales, eh. it was great to have a certain amount of financial security, which which I had from that initial deal. But it wasn't I wasn't set up for life. I wasn't um, you know, it meant that I didn't have to worry about losing my teacher's salary for a couple of years. But that was that was it, really. But the rest of my energy really went into writing something else. I don't tend to deconstruct what other people are supposed to be looking at in their jobs I just do mine hmm. I noticed that looking back um, at the time there was this sort of narrative around your success as if you kind of come from nowhere whereas actually you'd written two previous published novels and as we've talked about many others you'd be writing for a long time and it's a sort of thing that you know happens to women I think more than men I wonder how that felt and um, if you have a view on why why it is that we're kind of, we sometimes try to spin stories of people who've had immediate success rather than valuing stories of people who've worked really, really hard and honed a craft, which is in many ways, you know, should be a better story. Yeah, but I think the media has a tendency to enjoy certain narratives more than others. The narratives that they think play well are the ones that that imply that anybody can do these things and that they're a sort of lottery win uh, or a Cinderella story. 
And I think they tend to emphasize the aspects of any person's success story to make those narratives their own. And so, yeah, I mean, academic works for 15 years to achieve literary success, having written three novels, isn't a Cinderella story. It's a story of hard work. It's not a story of winning the lottery. And, and they wanted they wanted their Cinderella story. And so there were an awful lot of pieces about how I basically sort of accidentally written this book. Um, and it was, yeah. as you'd expect, slightly annoying. But, you know, in, in the 21 years since then, I've realized that to accept that that's often the way things happen and the way things are depicted, things will be presented to the public in a way that the press think will be most appealing, not the way things really are. I wonder if um, I wonder if it will change. I was just thinking that I often tell my children, oh, you know, no, it's the it's it's the practice, it's the hard work that counts. You know, I, and I feel that schools are very big on this now too. In a way, they perhaps weren't when I was at school. And I wonder if that will transform in a way the way that society at large thinks about these things. I would hope so. I would hope so too, but I don't think so. <laughs> I think it's got much worse. And I think that the narratives on the internet are much more appealing than the narratives that you get at school. And the narratives on the internet tell you that if you have a webcast, if you have a, new, a YouTube channel, if you're a celebrity, then you don't have to do much work at all. Mm. And whether that's true or not remains to be seen, but it's it's a narrative and it's a very popular one. Um, I read quite recently that uh, a, a poll made in secondary schools, in particularly with girls, showed that the majority of girls seemed to feel that pole dancer or celebrity was a reasonable career choice, mm. um, which is very depressing. Yeah. And not at all what I want to believe about the future. But I do think that the idea of cheap and easy celebrity without understanding the downside or indeed the meaning of celebrity has created some very false expectations in the minds of some children. Yes. And is continuing to do it, too, because, you know, the more reality shows you have that make ordinary people into celebrities, and by the way, often ruin their lives in the process. You know, the more people will be wanting to, to have these these kind of magical phenomena happen to them. Hmm. I suppose it comes back to what you were saying about enjoying the actual hard work in the first place. Because if you're doing that, then you don't care so much, you know, how quickly yes. the success comes or indeed if it does at all. I think so. But, I, you know, it's it's not an easy concept to sell to people. The fact that you have to spend years of your life potentially being rejected and not knowing whether something will come of it. You know, it's much, much easier to believe in easy solutions. And everybody wants to believe in that. Everybody loves a fairy story. But very few people would would really like to believe that you have to spend thousands, hundreds of thousands of hours doing something before you actually get good at it. Mm. You know, everybody wants to be Neo in the Matrix who gets to learn Kung Fu in, in 60 minutes. 
Absolutely. It would be nice if there was a, a matrix program for writers, wouldn't it? <laughs> Just churn you out with a bestseller straight after. I'm not sure there would be. I don't, I, I don't think that would be a good thing. I think actually learning from mistakes and learning from failure and learning from rejection is part of the process. It's it's not a sign that something's going wrong. It's a sign that something is going right, which is why rejection and failure and mistakes, they're not things that people should be ashamed of. Mm. They're all signposts on the road to success. And, and, you know, I don't believe in the success of people who say that they didn't make any mistakes or that they weren't rejected. Chances are that the people who say this are people who, who never went on the journey in the first place and mm. who used their celebrity in some other way to, to get an easy deal. And yes. we know people who do this, people who do this yeah. all the time. Okay, so Chocolat was made into a film um as you mentioned film rights were bought quite early on um a film with Juliette Binoche and Johnny Depp and um uh I read that you were only paid five thousand pounds for the film rights um the film made yeah, that's not true. oh is that not right okay what what is no it's piece? not somebody made a made a figure up it was more than that um okay. but it wasn't a fortune Okay. Um, you know, initially film rights to a book that hasn't been published tend to be quite cheap. Yes. Um, but and no, it, was it made... wasn't anything like the sort of money that any that people generally imagine comes from a movie. And the film was made by Miramax, wasn't it? Did you meet Harvey Weinstein? Yes. <laughs> yes? What was that yes, like? Yes, I met him. Um, well, you know, I met a lot of people around then and he wasn't my boss and so... I didn't really feel intimidated by him, but I, I knew a lot of people were intimidated. I know that there was a, a sense of real alarm on the set when they thought he was going to be there. And he knew it. He, he knew that he had that effect on people and he liked it. Um, I remember the first thing he said to me, uh, we met at a party um, and introducing himself, he said, hi, I'm Harvey Weinstein. And when I come into a room, authors shit their pants. Oh, so I said, in that case, Harvey, you've got my next dry cleaning bill. And he <laughs> laughed like a drain and moved on. But, you know, he, he, he was that kind of person. He liked to feel that he, he put the fear of God into people. He, that, that was what, what he enjoyed. Yes, I think we've, we're all kind of aware of that now. But OK, so you've now written, I think, 29 books, including 18 novels. It's absolutely incredible. That sounds like a lot. <laughs> And your latest novel is A Narrow Door, which is a thriller about two teachers at a grammar school in a dead body that's discovered in the grounds. And I think one of the really th great things about this book, and many of the books you've written, in fact, is the way you flit between points of view. You also do this in Chocolat, actually. But here we have the perspective of Rebecca Buckfast, the head teacher at St Oswald's, Oswald's who talks a lot about dismantling the patriarchy and the things she's sort of come up against to get to where she is. And then we also have the perspective of Roy Straitley, the classics teacher who's a little hapless, um, not always the most progressive, but neither is good or bad. And I like that very much. And I wondered if- One of them is a murderer. Yes, <laughs> well, that that's true. Perhaps I should stress that neither of them is all good or bad as a, as a as a reader, you don't feel particularly judgmental of that murderer or anyone. You have moments of judgment, certainly, but I certainly felt sympathy with both your perspectives a lot. 
And I think that people don't come in in all black or all white uh, moral tones. I think, you know, it's everybody exists in multiple shades of grey. And and I think if, if you're going to write real people, then you have to bear that in mind. I think what makes it especially interesting is that is the choice to make it is to to make it those specific perspectives because you can have these well-rounded characters writing in the third person or writing in the first person who kind of looking at those other characters and being kind of comprehensively describing them or or um, being non-judgmental or whatever but you choose to have these specific perspectives and then go really into why they are as they are and are also quite good at telling the reader stuff that the perspective person doesn't know and things like that and I wondered when you when you start those characters do you do you start with particular character traits in mind and go on to find that they're complicated in ways you weren't expecting well, yeah, I mean, I start with the voice generally. One of the reasons I write these split first person narratives is that I enjoy inhabiting different roles and speaking in different voices. And so usually I feel that when I've nailed the voice, then I've got a reasonably good angle on the character. But yeah, I, I often do surprise myself. And I, I kind of, I like to do that because if the character does sit up and surprise you, then chances are you wrote a good three-dimensional character that came to life. <laughs> and sometimes even if the surprise is something that knocks your plot off course, uh, I find that it's best to go with it. And and when you're writing thrillers, do you feel differently about your writing than when you're writing? You know, I don't really understand why they need to be separated into these genres anyway. Yeah, Most of my books have an aspect of suspense or mystery. Most of my books have some element of folkloric or legendary basis and in the narrative. All of them have vivid descriptions because, you know, I happen to like vivid descriptions in, in writing. But, you know, it's, it is the job of somebody else to put them into different boxes. And, and I'll accept to do that. But I don't think it's, it's something that impacts on me at all. Mm. Can I go back a little to when you said that you revisited some of the manuscripts that you uh, put down before Chocolat? So one of those was Runemarks, is that right? Yeah. And the other was, I'm sorry, remind me which the other one you uh, The other one was, was one called Holy Fools. Holy um, Fools. Which came out a few years yeah. after Chocolat, I think. And what was it like revisiting those manuscripts? I know you said earlier that you pretty much completely rewrote one of them. What was it like um, picking them up again after a while and sort of tweaking them into reanimating them, I suppose? I think with me, it's a question of finding out if something's still alive. It's, it's looking at a story, thinking, OK, do I still care about this story? Do I still care about these characters? And if so, what am I going to do about it? So with, with Runemarks, it was when my daughter was old enough for me to to be able to read her the, the one thing that I'd ever written that counted as a children's book or might count as a children's book. And I wrote it to her and she said, well, why, why isn't this a book? And I said, well, because nobody wanted to publish it. And she said, well, tell them to. And so I thought, <laughs> OK, well, we'll have a look at this again. It's obviously not complete and the style is a bit raw and it's a bit baggy in its shape. But you know what? The idea is actually quite good. Let's let's run with the idea. And so I wrote it again from scratch with keeping some of the characters and keeping the main concept, but changing the plot quite a lot. Um, 
and it, it, it became rune marks. And then I kept going with that series because I'd found something that my daughter enjoyed and so did I. How wonderful. And when you say you wrote it from scratch, did you put away the old manuscript and just literally start again? Or did you kind of yes. piece together? Oh, wow. Okay. No, I wrote it from scratch. It was, um, you know, the original manuscript, which was handwritten in school textbooks, was, was not publishable. And there was no point me going over it again and, and trying to unpick the things that, that were wrong with it, because the whole thing was wrong. The whole thing was shapeless and overlong and the plot wasn't all that interesting, but the, the, the world was, the idea was, and the main character was. And I thought, okay, I'm going to take those, those basic things and I'm going to make them into something new. So, so I did that because I think, you know, something that's, that's that old doesn't necessarily bear using as as a coat hanger for, for something new. Sometimes you actually have to pull something down completely and just use some of the bricks, which is what I did with that. Whereas with Holy Fools, it was different. The book was three quarters finished. Um, I just basically rewrote the ending. Did you show your agent and editors these things as they were moving along or warn them in advance through picking up old manuscripts? No, it wasn't really something that I thought of telling them. I just wanted, I mean, they didn't need to know the background. You know, nobody, nobody really needs to know why you write something or where the idea came from or when it came from. Those, those things are, those things are things that readers are interested in perhaps later. But all the agent wants is a manuscript that they can sell. And mm. so that's, that's what I did. And I, I wrote the the thing and then said to my agent here it is um can you sell it and with rune marks my agent was quite negative about it she didn't want me to write fantasy at all she wanted me to write more cookbooks she wanted me to write more chocolat books in fact we had a bit of a bash about it and I remember her saying to me over the phone you know what you're going to have to decide whether you want to go swanning around like a pirate writing anything like the hell you want or whether you want to knuckle down and make us both some money um <laughs> <laughs> so I got a new agent and I sent the book out to um, a different publisher, one who actually did publish fantasy and 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 it was published that way. But no, my, my, my old agent was objectively completely right. The thing was, that's not what I wanted to do. I didn't want to do the brand thing and to write more cookbooks or, or to write more French novels than I than I were, was able to. And, and you know, I, I was enjoying diversifying and I didn't want to to just write the same thing over and over again. And I haven't done. I've not written anything that even things that are in a series are so separate from each other in that I've introduced a new element or I've tried something new. Because for me, if a book isn't at least partly new, or if I'm not taking a risk of some kind, I really don't see why I would write it at all. Mm. I think it's really liberating to hear that, Joanne. I think that people sometimes feel that they've got to make all the decisions straight away. And you're Absolutely. someone who, who you doesn't. Don't have to. No, nobody has to do that. I mean, I, I can completely see why some people do, and that's fine, and props to them. I mean, um, I used to share a publisher with Lee Child, and... Uh, he happened to like my books and I happened to like his and we achieved success at almost the same time. 
and brought out books at almost the same time. So we always got each other's proofs. And I was always admiring of how strong a brand he'd managed to create and how well he was able to sustain that success over such a long time. He's finally, I think, reached the end of it and retired on, on his millions. And good for him. You know, I genuinely feel happy that he did that. Um, I also think that I would never have had the temperament to do something like that and to create that kind of strong brand and to maintain it. It would have it would have killed me. I wouldn't have enjoyed it anymore. And, and you know, as soon as I don't enjoy something, I stop doing it. Yes. Well, one of the other things that you say in 10 Things About Writing is one of the early things you say is decide what you want from writing and you list a number of things. So for your own pleasure, um, to entertain your grandchildren, to be published commercially. What is your reason? And is it the same as when you started out? Well, for me, there's only one reason, and it's joy. If I didn't have that, I would still be teaching. I had a career and I had a pension and all the things that come with it. And writing, by contrast, is a very insecure profession. There is no pension. There is no likelihood of progression because generally in a writing career you get your if you have your big success you get most money at the beginning of your career rather than than later on and you know it's it's a constant struggle because you're only as good as the last book that you wrote um but yeah joy and if it doesn't give you that then there are a lot more easier ways of dying poor than being a writer <laughs> I think what's really interesting is to unpick what joy means a little bit because I think what gets in the way of some people's joy certainly mine sometimes is the panic that it's not very good and even if you would um, otherwise find it joyful I think that self-doubt can really get in the way of that joy yeah I think a lot of people feel this way I think pretty much everybody feels this way and in the same way as looking at rejection and failure, you have to look at self-doubt as one of the things which comes with the package. And I also think that if you stop feeling self-doubt, it's probably the moment at which you've stopped growing and getting better. So to me, self-doubt is that, that part of you which is still prepared to take a risk and to learn. Because as soon as you're complacent and you think, right, that's, that's it, I'm good now. I don't have to learn anything else. Then you start being, forgive me, a bit of a dick. And generally your <laughs> writing shows and, and it, 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 will, it will affect the, the quality of your work. Do you still feel self-doubt sometimes? Always. Always. And it's a good thing. You should always be your own best critic. And that, that way, most of the points which other critics will make, you will have already addressed and weeded out before they even get to see your work. And this, this is a good thing. Thank you so much for listening to Write Off. If you enjoyed it, I'd be delighted if you fancied leaving a rating or review on your podcast app. That really helps people find the podcast if they've not heard of it before. Or on Twitter, where you can find me at Francesca Steele. Don't forget that I list my guests' books at my online bookshop, which is uk.bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash Francesca Steele. Details in the show notes. If you buy books there, you are helping me fund this podcast. 
So thank you and see you next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited-edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.